We have come to the last panel for the day, and I've got a small confession to make. Um, the name of this panel is Established Brands, New Ways. I will confess that that wasn't the original um, title. Uh, I was a bit more crude with the original title. I said simply, Old Brands, New Ways. And then when it went to Alan, he struck off the old and he replaced old with established. Because looking at the three legacy news media organisations here, we have the Straits Times that's 173 years old, um, SCMP, which is about 115 years old, and the newest kid on the block is Bloomberg News, which is about 28 years old. So we're very happy to have um, three of the organisations represented here today. And uh, let me introduce briefly the chair, Ms. Junie Lau, who will chair the panel um, and moderate the discussions. So Junie has spent 15 years in broadcast television and she has also spent seven years teaching at the Nanyang Technological University. Um, in addition, Junie is also Vice President of the Singapore Press Club and Co-Founder of Hacks Hacker Singapore. Junie is currently Program Director of One IFRA. Welcome, Junie. Thank you, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, and it's been a very intense day with so many uh, thought-provoking presentations and, and many, many insights to reflect on. I promise we'll try and keep this as interesting as possible. Uh, we've got a really exciting uh, panel uh, of discussion, uh, discussions and speakers uh, lined up today. Thanks, Carol and, and AGF, for putting together an excellent uh, panel. Uh, well, maybe if I can invite our speakers up to, to, to take their seats. Uh, very quickly, I think AJF is a, I'm, uh, AJF is a very dear um, fellowship to me. Uh, I've, re I've literally met, I think, every batch of AJF fellows since the first batch 10 years ago uh, when I was teaching at uh, NTU. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the program has only grown from strength to strength uh, since it's moved uh, to NUS. You're in really, really good hands. I'm so envious of the fellows today uh, and, and the great program that uh, Alan and Carol and the whole team have uh, put together. Uh, I've, I've also, I think, personally benefited a lot from the discussions. I, I have, I think, attended almost every AGF forum that's been uh, held every year. So uh, without further ado, this today, the, the topic is uh, on established brands and uh, new ways. I'm very happy to say I think I've actually visited all three newsrooms. Uh, and, you know, it's been a great, uh, it's been great to see as a sort of an industry, in the industry, but also observing the big changes that have been happening in the industry uh, and what uh, these various uh, newsrooms are, have been doing to innovate and transform their organizations. I think to save time as well, uh, I won't go through since all their bios are in the, the booklet already, but uh, perhaps we will start first 15 minutes per speaker and then we'll do Q&A in a discussion. So uh, let me uh, invite Warren to take the first session, thanks. Okay, good, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I would have been happy to stick with old brands and new ways, Alan, so it would have been fine. Uh, we're not ashamed of the fact that we're an old brand. We're 173 years this year, and in 2020, we will celebrate our 175th brand, uh, 105th year. Uh, I, I know it's three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and you've had long sessions, so I thought I would start with a video. and. Uh, it's an interesting video, and I think if you watch it, you might wonder what, how it's relevant to what we're discussing today, but I'll tell you about that after the video. So can we have the video, please?
Okay. Thank, thank you for watching. I mean, uh, you are wondering what North Korea has to do with our discussion. This, this was a video that was done by one of my colleagues, Rahul Patak, who went to North Korea ahead of the big Kim Trump summit here in Singapore. And the reason I chose to show this video is because we have been on a, a journey of transformation for the last five years or so. And we, we now no longer see ourselves as a newspaper. Many of you would know of us as a 173-year-old newspaper, but that's no longer how we view ourselves. We are, in our minds, a complete multimedia operation. And when Rahul, a very a senior journalist, goes out into the field, whether it's in North Korea or here in Singapore, we are constantly thinking about how to tell our stories to best effect on a whole range of platforms. And that, in our mind, is the transformation journey that we want to talk about today. Because we recognize that the whole idea that people came to us once a day in the morning when we, we connected to them and the paper landed on their doorstep has fundamentally changed. Uh, but that to us is a, a huge opportunity because now we have the ability to connect with our readers, not just once a day, but many, many times a day on a, across a whole range of platforms on their tablets, on their PCs, on their phones, on the radio, through our events, through discussions such as these, uh, through newsletters, through all the social media platform. And that connection with, our, uh, with the audience is really what uh, I think is the future for us. And we are seeing our digital subscriptions uh, grow. Today, about 90% of our subscriptions include a digital component, and only 10% are, is pure print. Uh, we are seeing the audience as well changing. More than half of our audience is uh, in their 30s or younger. So in that sense, being an old brand is in no way uh, a problem for us because the brand changes with the times, the brand changes with the technology, and the, the brand changes with the readership. Now, how have we made that transition over the last uh, years? What we've done is not gone for a sort of big bang approach. Our approach, I would, I would characterize as uh, waves of change. If you've ever stood on a beach you know, on a Friday or Saturday or weekend, watching the waves as they come in on shore, you know, it's just relentless, it keeps coming, it never seems to stop, just wave upon wave of change, chipping away at the cliff or, or the beach. And over time, you notice that things have changed. You know. Minute to minute, it doesn't seem to change. You just see the waves coming. But over some time, you do see a very noticeable change. And that's the approach we've taken. Uh, it has been going on for many, many years. Uh, many generations of newsroom editors have been working at this. But for me, the journey began when I first returned to the Straits Times uh, in 2012. And I remember being quite horrified that there was literally a wall between the print operations and the digital operations. And one of the first things I thought we had to do was to f break down that wall, that physical separation between the two teams. And uh, my, uh, many of us, including my ex-colleague Alan, we, we changed the, the, the mandate for each news editor. If you were the, the home news editor, you were responsible for print and digital content coming out of Singapore. If you were the foreign news editor, you were responsible for foreign news for print and digital. So the roles changed, and that, in a sense, was the first wave of change. 
And that took some time to get embedded in the system, to change processes, to change mindsets, to change ways of working. And then we did that for about a year, 18 months, and then we had the second wave of change where we made a fundamental switch in the news flow of the day. And we did that because we saw the audience was uh, changing. We were getting a big spike in the audience from 7 to about 9 a.m. But our first news conference was happening at about 10.30 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And how absurd is that? You know, your audience is there at 7, but you're only thinking about what stories to put on the website at 11. So we, we decided to change and have our first news conference at 7 in the morning. And uh, Alan and Sumiko and others put up their hands and said they would start that conference going very early in the day. So we started to discuss stories, push it to the website from, from early in the day and then iterate as we went through the day and then finally think about how to put it together for the print product. Some people call this the digital first approach. It's not a phrase that I like because it pits digital against print. For me, the whole newsroom is doing both and it's not one or the other which is most important. So the, the way we characterize it is we call it first to digital and then print. So content is just content. You get the best version of the story, you put it up, and then iterate through the day, and then finally do it for, for print. Now, the third wave of, of that transformation is really the, on the payment uh, method. And we've moved from being a freemium model to a metered model, and today what we call the premium model. And there are pros and cons for all of those models. You will find, a, if, if I ask a survey in this newsroom, there will be all possible permutations within all your newsrooms. And there's no ideal system. It really depends on your market. And we've made that transition uh, for the simple reason that we believe that the future lies in getting more revenues from subscribers. Digital advertising is growing, but from a low base. And we see prospects for growth in the digital subscription space. So that's what we're working on. Uh, since we've launched it in February this year, we have actually seen our digital subscriptions grow, which is very encouraging. And as I say, today the default mode of subscription to ST is really in the all-in-one package and also the digital package. So that's, that's a positive development for us. Uh, I would say that today in the, in the younger generation, the Netflix generation and the folks who've grown up with Spotify, I think they are quite comfortable with the idea of paying for content. If you can show that you have content that's meaningful and interesting and engaging across the platforms where they are operating on. So that's what we are, we are trying to play to that psychology. The other thing that's helpful for us is this whole proliferation of fake news. You would have seen today's massive coverage on the select committee. Uh, if you look at what is coming at us from the Edelman Trust Barometer Index, there is a clear uh, distinction between trusted brands and, uh, and other sources of news. And the, you know, if you, the Edelman uh, Index showed that trust in journalism went up by five percentage points, even as trust in all other media organizations was on the downward trend uh, globally, not just in Singapore. So that says to me that people are looking for voices that they can trust, that they can rely on to help them make sense of what's going on in the world. And th that is, I think, a space, a niche in which we want to play. Obviously, we want to cover Singapore and uh, all aspects of what's happening in Singapore well, but we also want to cover what's going on in Asia well. 
So that's a unique position for us because you will have organizations which cover China, uh, like the South China Morning Post, you might have organizations that cover India or Indonesia, but we cover the relationship between China and the US, the relationship between China and Japan and uh, India and, and China and Korea, and that whole nexus that's happening across these countries from a fairly neutral, independent, and insider perspective. And I think that's of interest to an international audience uh, that, that is hungry for an Asian perspective on what's going on in this part of the world. Uh, today, about 30% of our uh, traffic to our website is uh, from outside Singapore. And it comes from Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, and the US. And that's almost with zero effort on our part to promote and market it. So we are now actively growing uh, our efforts to, to build our subscriptions internationally. We've added uh, 10 new positions to our network of bureaus over the past year with a, with a clear focus that we want to grow uh, in this space as well, not just in Singapore, but internationally. So Junie mentioned, uh, just as a concluding point, Junie mentioned she had visited our newsroom. Uh, if you came to our newsroom today, you would see it in a rather frightful state. Uh, it's, there's banging and hacking going on around the place because we have completely stripped out the whole of the second floor of the, the news centre and we are all sort of spread out in different parts of the building uh, in holding areas because we are completely redesigning and revamping the newsroom. Uh, we're going to build a new hub in the middle, a, a much bigger hub where the key folks will operate from. Right in the centre of the newsroom, we are building a new video studio, which will enable us to produce a lot more video and, and graphic and visual content. Uh, and we are basically reimagining how the newsroom should operate uh, if, we were, if we were designing it from scratch to, to, to play to the new workflows that we are now uh, operating day in and day out. And it's not just adding new facilities and new toys. The workflow is meant to help us generate new kinds of content. So if you come back next year, sometime in the middle of next year, and you want to visit, you're more than welcome to do so. I hope you will find the completely transformed newsroom, which is going to be able to put out some pretty interesting and cool stuff. So I'll end there, and I'm happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lauren. <laughs> Yes, I remember very well that wall between digital and print. <laughs> I walked in and I was being taken around the digital, the website and uh, the newsroom. And I was like, why do we have to walk through a wall? And don't you want to be seen? Don't you want to know what's going on on the print side? And I'm so glad. It, yeah, then after that, it subsequently, a few years later, it was taken down. So there was more integration. Okay, um, our next uh, newsroom will be uh, very different, very, very international, very global uh, organization, 2,700 journalists. I think the largest uh, Asia, the largest bureau is in Hong Kong, right? In Asia. Um, Japan, Hong Kong. Japan and Hong Kong. Yeah, and then Singapore. So uh, Stephanie here heads uh, the Singapore Bureau, and uh, she tells how they, they operate globally. Right, thank you. I might use the podium so that uh, the clicker. Have some slides. Do my slides work? They do. Awesome. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, first, I want to thank the Tomasic Foundation and the Institute of Policy Studies for uh, having me here today. Um, a wise editor in our newsroom reminded me recently that we need to know where we came from to see where we are and where we're going. So let me start. I'm going to speed through this because I think you've gone through a similar exercise before. How many of you, um, when you started 
working as a reporter, uh, there was no Snapchat and no Instagram. Okay, uh, and raise your hands if you entered journalism before Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Netflix in its current streaming form. Okay, good. I don't feel so old now. Um, but this next one is gonna make me feel old. Um, raise your hands if the only smartphone around when you started out as a journalist was the Nokia communicator. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to end up going back to pre-CNN and typewriters. And yes, I've used a typewriter too, but not as a journalist. Um, if you think about how you gathered news and published your stories at the start of your career and how you do that now, you will see how many of these external innovations have changed your readers and your audience's behavior and changed the way you worked, or both. At Bloomberg News, we feel this even more acutely in our quest to build a newsroom that lasts, a newsroom of the future. That's because since the day we started, two things have always shaped Bloomberg News. First, technology. In particular, our own technology that powers the Bloomberg Terminal, which is the main conduit for our news. And second, an intense focus on who our readers are and what they need. So for us, adapting to change and technology is baked into our DNA. One of our mantras at Bloomberg News is show, don't tell. So let me show you what I mean. If you had joined Bloomberg as a reporter in the 1990s, you would have joined a tiny little startup which began with just a dozen reporters crammed into two offices in New York and London. The first Bloomberg news story, a piece about a personnel change at Goldman Sachs, ran on June 14, 1990. Your story would have probably looked like this. By today's standards, this looks rudimentary. Your story was just a bunch of words on a screen. But back then, this was remarkable in several ways. Your story was published digitally on the Bloomberg terminal only, and therefore reached your readers directly, immediately, and simultaneously around the world. Remember, there was no internet at this time, or not a working one. Um, everything was connected to Bloomberg's network for financial professionals. So Bloomberg's communication systems, message, and instant Bloomberg were among the first commercial messaging platforms, and we could take advantage of that. Your story was written tailored for a specific audience. That's the financial professional. So you knew exactly what information needed to be there. Your story looked the way it did, like this, because it shared the same technology as the Bloomberg Terminal. While there were no word limits, you needed to fit all the most important information into one screen in case the reader has no time to page down to the rest of the story. And the text is a distinctive orangey-yellow on the terminal, which still uh, is the case today. Finally, your story benefited from the real-time data that was available on the same terminal that it was published on. How you gathered the information for these stories would have seemed somewhat archaic too. In markets like Malaysia, our reporters had to trudge to the stock exchange every day to collect reams of printed company filings. They had to phone it in and then bring the papers back to the office to update or write the stories. Uh, press releases had to be faxed and someone had to watch every time the machine beeped. Uh, I think a lot of us remember those days. So for this story, the numbers for Thailand would have come from the Bloomberg Terminal, which have had a live feed from the SET. That said, just to give you a sense of the world that we were working in then, Lee Miller, the reporter then, probably had to ask someone in Hong Kong or Singapore or Tokyo to fax him the, uh, the Bangkok data. He might not have had a fully working terminal back then because you had to use a dial-up modem in Bangkok to connect to the Bloomberg network. Uh, but we worked with the technology we had. Um, and we combined our own powerful network with the communications tools of the time. Through it all, our purpose was clear. 
Ever since it first appeared in the then opaque bond market in 1982, the Bloomberg Terminal has been a force for transparency. It gives customers the data they need to make decisions. Likewise, since 1990, Bloomberg News has given our readers the information they need to understand markets, economies, and companies. That's why technology and our readers were so fundamental to how we worked. By the time I joined Bloomberg in 2002 in Kuala Lumpur, a decade after Lee's Thai stock story here, our scrappy little upstart news outfit had become a glowing global name. Even though I occasionally still had to explain that we were Bloomberg, not Bluebird, when I called companies to seek an interview. By then, it was a newsroom that had an established form, function, and discipline in stories, and the technology that helped us to report and publish had progressed. The internet worked. We had cell phones. Company filings were online. The fax machine was still there, but its dominance in the newsroom would soon be over. So if you were with me on my first day at Bloomberg in August 2002, you would have walked through the security scanners at the Petronas Twin Towers, taken up the high-speed uh, lifts up to the 61st floor, and you would have walked into this very modern, well-equipped little newsroom with television sets broadcasting Bloomberg Television, our iconic fish tank and a well-stocked pantry, and most importantly, a full Bloomberg terminal on each reporter's desk. We had multiple screens to work on. It put powerful technology data and analytics at our journalists' fingertips and continues to do so today. Back in 2002, it allowed me to just hit the ground running as a reporter. My first story, just two paragraphs long, was based on off-market stock trading data that was available on our terminal. As my bureau chief at the time explained, the data gave us an edge. It allowed us to inform our readers of market transactions that few others could. Here's what else I could do just in my first week as a reporter at Bloomberg. Having the Bloomberg terminal allowed me to instantly report market moves with context. I could tell readers whether shares of a company called VADS were the most actively traded stock at the time. I could say Unico Dessa was at a 27-month high. I could write this immediately without having to use a calculator, opening my Excel spreadsheet, or doing any mental gymnastics. It was all there on the terminal. For economy stories, I could tell you that Malaysia's industrial production rose for a third month in June, compared it with economists' estimates on the terminal, even though the, and even though the ringgit was then pegged to the dollar, uh, we could still give you some market reaction. We could say the dollar had weakened almost 9% against that, uh, the yen that year, all on the terminal. Our focus on the reader had become established as part of the culture when I joined. Reporters were drilled in classic Bloomberg four-paragraph leads designed to fit the who, what, when, where, how, why, so what, um, plus the context provided by our data into one standard Bloomberg screen so that the busy financial professional wouldn't have to waste time looking for them. We included clickable links to functions and data on the terminal at the end of the story so readers could find the data themselves. Our stories now also served a broader audience because our reach had grown and we, we explained financial terms and eschewed jargon. Um, it wasn't just about the form though. Then as now, we strove to get the content right for our readers. In the Bloomberg way, our newsroom bible, are principles that have not changed since the beginning of Bloomberg News. We strive to be the most factual word on any topic, the first to report the news and the fastest to report the details. 
We should also be the final word or the most definitive source on major events as well as the future word that tells our audience what's next. We avoid conflicts of interest, whether they're actual or perceived, whether they're political, financial or personal. We write accurately, we write fairly without bias or agenda. Opinion and commentary are clearly labelled as such. We do not allow commercial considerations to shade our news and judgement because that would undermine our integrity and reputation. Fast forward to today. These principles have kept us centered as the news and information technology, information landscape transformed rapidly. The newsroom is part of a comprehensive Bloomberg News and editorial universe. We produce thousands of stories and headlines a day for about 325,000 subscribers. Let me show you what our universe looks like at this moment. This week, US President Trump unleashed his latest volley in the developing trade war with China. Here's how we covered it. This is a standard Bloomberg story that we did on the terminal. Note the difference, it's still orangey yellow. We've got uh, deck heads, and if you scroll down, we've got tables, we've got charts, uh, and we've got links to our Bloomberg television interviews. We also have photos, obviously, and commentary from our Bloomberg economist, which is part of our Bloomberg intelligence research and analysis team that we built. The terminal is still the heart and soul of Bloomberg. It is where our stories start. Many terminal customers get their news from alerts pegged to companies, securities, people, or keywords. Our news is indexed on hundreds of pages so readers can find what they need as soon as it's available. Some readers also come to the terminal via customized news alert emails on topics ranging from cotton to interest rate swaps. The tariff st story also led our website on Bloomberg.com, where you can also listen to articles if you don't want to read them. Um, we also tweeted our stories shared them on our TikTok Twitter channel, and promoted them on our WhatsApp chat. We're constantly working to make sure we're where our audience wants to be, and also that we're offering people the content they want, not just a fire hose of stories and videos. To that end, our social and mobile teams are really big focuses for us. We're on more social platforms than we were even a year ago. We have about a dozen Facebook accounts, more than 30 Twitter accounts, two line accounts, plus LinkedIn, Instagram, WhatsApp, YouTube. Plus, we have a suite of targeted newsletters for subscribers and non-subscribers so people can find the best of our stories in their inboxes too. We, back to Trump and the tariffs, um, we had the live blog too. This was on our terminal. Um, and also, that was carried on our website as well. We also had quick market reactions delivered in bullet point format, what we call our first word format. And we had on the news commentary from our opinions team. We also coordinated breaking news with Bloomberg TV and radio programming, bringing in experts and Bloomberg reporters around the world. Bloomberg Television began just a few years after Bloomberg News was, was born, and we now anchor it from studios in Singapore, Dubai, Hong Kong, London, New York, San Francisco, and Sydney. The reach is global. When we broadcast in Asia, we're broadcasting globally. And we have Bloomberg Radio, and we have a studio here in Singapore as well, which is also broadcast around the world. Uh, the interesting thing about our Bloomberg and radio is that on the terminal, clients can actually type TV Go to watch our content and to get listened to radio on the terminal. It gives us a direct link to our audience and enables them to interact with our content and provide real-time feedback. Um, so how else did we deliver the news on the trade war? We, uh, we had a squawker who delivered the news to clients on the terminal via an audio feed. 
Um, our coverage was in multiple languages. We have Japanese, Chinese, Russian, Spanish, German, Turkish, Portuguese, Korean languages. And for people waking up in Europe or Dubai that day, our Daybreak Morning News Digest got them caught up in just minutes. And we write quick take explainers to help people understand the issues like war. As you can tell, we are a multi-platform news organization, and we use our own technology and the latest tools available. This means our reporters often have to juggle TV hits with reporting, writing, charting, tweeting, Instagramming. That's not all. They also contribute stories to two magazines, Bloomberg Business Week and Markets. But more importantly, it means that we as journalists have many different ways of telling our stories. A story can be as short as a first word bullet point item or as long as a 35,000 word essay on computer coding. Yeah, we did that too. Um, or it can be a successful digital video. This last slide shows you how technology allows us to tell a good story in a creative way that engages the audience. This was off the terminal, this was on our website. It was a story we did about Silicon Valley billionaires who can, uh, who can afford to build luxury bunkers in New Zealand. Um, just in case the bleakest future comes true. So not only did we illustrate it like a comic book, as you can see, if you read the story online, those flames and the, the skyline of the Silicon Valley, they actually flicker. It is pretty cool. So that's where we have been and where we are, but where are we going? Our editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, said recently, Bloomberg is a laboratory where you can see the future of news. What is the future? In a recent article titled, What Else? The Future of News, John says, news is an industry in transition, not in decline. It is re-emerging as something more digital, more personalized, more automated, more paid for, and eventually less fake. <clears throat> the quality press has staged a remarkable resurrection thanks to the introduction of metered paywalls that charge regular readers but still leave their websites open to much larger audiences of occasional visitors who can see advertisements. This year, we at Bloomberg joined the trend with our own consumer subscription business. We already have perhaps the most profitable professional paywall through the Bloomberg terminal. Now we're expanding a version of the Business Week paywall that we erected last year to cover all of Bloomberg.com. We think that consumers will pay. For those who care about journalistic independence, this is generally a good thing because relying on readers for your income presents fewer ethical dilemmas to editors than chasing advertisers. John also wrote that news is, a changing, is changing shape, with technology revolutionizing the way stories are produced. One change is automation. At Bloomberg, when John arrived in 2015, he found, he found a team of speed reporters and editors who jumped on company earnings and sent out headlines across the terminal, their triumphs measured in seconds against Reuters, our ancestral rival. Another reporter would then write a fuller rap, say 10 minutes later bringing the numbers together, saying how the markets reacted, and perhaps adding an analyst quote. Nowadays, journalists increasingly prepare their story templates to be filled in by a computer system called Cyborg. It dissects a company's earnings the moment they appear and produces not just instant headlines, but in a matter of seconds, what is in fact a mini wrap of all the numbers and context. Today, a quarter of the content produced by Bloomberg has some degree of automation. Before anyone panics, we still need humans to write clever templates for the computers and to look for discrepancies. 
Journalists whose core responsibility used to be saying what happened now have to answer questions like why and what next. And it also gives a greater value to people who can uncover news. We tell our reporters to go out and break news now that you're no longer tied to waiting for that statement to drop. The financial press is also finding value in delivering the right information to people who have more money than time. You can deliver news picked not just to financiers' portfolios, but also to their player types. A fund manager will see a different news feed than someone selling equities. Finally, we have the multiplicity of platforms that I showed you. But let me conclude. What's emerging is news in a state of transition, news that's molded by both technology and old verities. As journalists, we have to work harder to keep our audiences. Bloomberg News, like our parent Bloomberg LP, has grown under the spirit of constructive paranoia. We know we are never perfect, but that's why we have to keep innovating, both as journalists and as a newsroom. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie, for that uh, really uh, that huge roller coaster ride through a time machine from days <laughs> of fax, faxes and dial-up modems, you know, with a whistle in your ear. Uh, in the pre-internet days of the text-only screen. Um, we have next uh, Yondun Latu, who is the chief news editor at South China Morning Post. Uh, the Post is 115 uh, years old this year, a very storied uh, history with, um, in, in Hong Kong, and uh, I think um, a, a lot it was the go-to paper, well, the go still is actually the go-to paper still for is. a lot, yes, <laughs> for Hong Kong and now even China. Uh, a really remarkable uh, transformation journey, and uh, please tell us more. Yeah, hi, thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm just going to play you uh, two videos first. Uh, I'm a survivor of a major storm that just hit our city. Um, hopefully, uh, that'll take up all the time and I have very little to say at the end. <laughs> so we start. <laughs>
Right, I, I can't find the other one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We can start talking. So um, this was like the most powerful storm on the planet this year, and it was also the most powerful ever to hit us. Hong Kong gets hit by about five or six typhoons a year, and I've been covering them for the last 25 years. This is the worst I've ever seen. It was really something. Anyway, um, to stick to topic, I want to explain how we covered this story uh, in this modern day now, as opposed to how uh, we would have covered it 20 years ago. Um, some confessions to make. I'm, I'm an old uh, dinosaur when it comes to new media and social media. I'm just absolutely hopeless. Um, Emily, my colleague there, was uh, earlier dissing Facebook, saying it's, it's too old-fashioned for young people. I just joined Facebook about uh, three years ago. My company put me on it. Uh, and uh, I upload uh, one, I write a column, a weekly column, so I upload that once a year. That's how, uh, once, a, once a week. And that's about how uh, active I am. I have about uh, just over 600 followers. And I take a lot of comfort from uh, what Sri said earlier, that it's not about the number of people who follow you. So. <laughs> And also, um, the other thing that I took a lot of comfort from, because I was feeling a bit inadequate with all the talk about, uh, you know, digital uh, divergence and uh, convergence and all that stuff, it just goes straight over the top of my head. But uh, uh, Alan John came up to me and said, uh, hey, what is this LinkedIn? I'm not on it. So, <laughs> so I, I took a lot of comfort from that, but anyway. So anyway, I stand very confidently now to talk about this. So um, my background is actually television. I started in newspapers. Uh, I did about 18 years of television. I was a news anchor and, uh, and an editor. And then about four years ago, I joined the SCMP. And I started bang in the middle of their digital transformation. And ironically, about a year ago, they decided our newspapers are 115 years old. So we had to uh, make a major psychological step, which is to divorce the actual printed product from the organization. The organization all these years has just been the newspaper. Now the organization is actually a media organization. It's online, it's uh, free of charge, thanks to Alibaba taking over. And uh, we're in a lucky position there. I don't know how much longer it'll last, but we're in a honeymoon period right now. I, I know they're going to demand their pound of flesh eventually, and we'll have to pay for it. But right now we're in this digital expansion. And uh, curiously, uh, the powers that be decided that I would take over the printed products. So I run the actual newspaper now. Uh, even though I'm from TV. Uh, I think it has to do something with uh, the fact that I'm really, really pedantic about uh, commas and full stops. I don't know, somehow it's, it's in my thing. I, I stress when I watch movies and uh, see the subtitles are wrong. And I can't concentrate on the movie. I'm that kind of guy. And also our, our print team is full of, let's, let me say, uh, elderly uh, expatriate journalists who are very good at what they do, but it's, they're very difficult to control. So... <laughs> And they're set in their ways, so they wanted somebody who was aggressive and abrasive, and I don't know if that's something to be proud of, but I guess that's why they chose me. So I'm looking after the printed product right now. So anyway, um, the, the storm hit us on, on uh, Saturday night. I was working very late till 3 a.m. Um, by the time I woke up the next day, we had a number 10 warning signal. Number 10 is the top tier in Hong Kong, so we have a 10-layered uh, 10, uh, system. 10 minutes the highest. It was a super typhoon when it was heading towards us. Uh, it had uh, weakened a bit, but it became a severe typhoon. And surely it was the strongest ever. I was stuck in, uh, at home. Uh, we have about four or five of us who are senior editors who actually run the newsroom, daily operations. All of them were uh, off. They were out of town. Uh, it was just me. I was running ops, basically. And uh, the, the online editor was a solid, solid guy with a solid team. So he spent the whole day in the office. Uh, and he was running his online crew. So they were doing a blog, you know, 
a minute-by-minute -minute update with all the video and the photos and information coming in. And uh, uh, he also has a social media team, and we had a Facebook group, uh, which is a community group, which is quite popular, and we changed that for the day. That was his idea again, to change it into a, a typhoon uh, group. So we were blitzing our readers and viewers with uh, all the latest information. Uh, I was stuck in home, at home for most of the time, looking out my window and wondering how the hell am I going to get to office. But uh, again, we have a fantastic uh, MTR system, you know, the Mass Transit Railway. And uh, I was lucky enough that I just needed to get to an MTR station, about five minutes run from my place. And uh, it was all underground routes, so I managed to get to the office. So I got to the office around five, six o'clock. Uh, that whole time, the online team was running the show. By the time I got, got in, uh, they had pretty much everything under control. This was a 10-hour Typhoon number 10 signal, which means for 10 hours it was relentless uh, you know, battering of Hong Kong and relentless battering of our readers and viewers by SCMP uh, for that day as well. So um, <clears throat> by the time I got in, uh, they were already going strong. The, the blog and the uh, Facebook uh, group kept on going for more than 10 hours. After that, it was my turn to take over. And uh, I mean, the actual coverage and the stories and what we're going to cover, that was managed by me. And uh, in the end, it went into the, uh, the whole uh, print operation. So um, the digital transformation, like I told you, the psychological barrier was actually separating the printed product. And this was a real uh, problem because uh, it was so ingrained in everyone in the newsroom that the printed product is premium, that that is the heart and soul of the newspaper. It, it took a long time. Even now, it's quite difficult for people to understand that what's going online goes to many more people than the printed paper. Uh, we have a... Our city is about seven and a half million uh, population. The printed papers, actually subscription rates is just over 100,000, not much. But so I like to think of it as a premium product and I like to take whatever is online and uh, none of my uh, online colleagues are here so I can say this, uh, not good enough for me, I want it to be better. Um, and also the fact that everything that's online is for free. So why should anyone buy the paper when they can read it for free online? So that's where me and my guys come in. We have a 30-strong team. And we like to make it pristine, or we hope to. And this is what we sell to our readers, saying that's a fast, quick and dirty version that you're reading online. The curated, proper product is what we do. So um, when I walked into the newsroom, the activity was, I mean, this is what new media is like, and this is what uh, social media is like. So everything was Facebook-driven. I don't like Facebook very much, which is why uh, I'm not that active, but it's a reality. And Alan, I have to tell you, uh, it's adapt or die. So I, I think this whole business of uh, digital convergence, digital uh, disruption, it's not about predicting and doing something in advance to cater for the trends. I think for people like us in our business, it's about adapting and making the most of it and using it as a platform to spring from and making your product even finer. So this is what we do. So there's a lot of clash. Uh, uh, Warren was talking about that, right? The clash between the online and digital teams. This is also a matter of, I mean, I'm old school, like I told you, and I believe uh, the, one of our company uh, mission statements is elevating thought. And for me, our most successful uh, stories online, one of the most successful stories online, think about it, is a Chinese woman who was on the tarmac waiting for a plane, and she chucked a coin into the engine, like a wishing well thing, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, the, the entire flight had to be grounded, obviously, and the whole engine dismantled. There was all kinds of things. That's one of our most successful stories. We can spend hours, you know, weeks of investigation and do a fantastic report which we put online. It doesn't get that same kind of uh, readership. But that's where the dinosaurs like me come in, to argue with our social media editors and our online editors to say that it's not all about clicks as well. 
It's also about elevating thought. I mean, we can go, you know, the monkeys eating peanuts way and flood our website with it and get lots of clicks and our traffic goes up and our KPIs are met, but it's not about that as well. There's a reason people come to the SCMP website. There's a reason why people read the SCMP news because they expect credibility, they expect insight, they expect news behind the news. Uh, they expect us to tell the story, the China story, like nobody else can. Uh, and we hope to do that. So this whole business of, uh, by the way, my, my print uh, operation, what I'm doing right now is a temporary thing because they want me to come back to the front end again and uh, work on the quality control and the coverage and whatever we do right now. So the print operation is temporary. But uh, I found that uh, a TV guy, I'm actually really, really uh, you know, into the printed product now. I, I find it... Uh, there's something about holding a newspaper. I know it sounds old school, but seriously, there's something about holding a printed newspaper in your hand. And I know uh, people talk about it as a dying thing. It's a sunset product. Uh, we have Jack Ma, the chairman of Alibaba, or soon to be uh, not chairman anymore, but anyway, he'll still be in charge. Um, he, the last meeting we had with him, he was about uh, 15 minutes late because he had gone out to buy a newspaper. And he was testing two things. He wanted to pick up a newspaper to let us know that this is still important for me, very important. And the other was he wanted to test Alipay at 7-Eleven. <laughs> so came back with the newspaper, waving the newspaper at us, and I put it to him saying, you know, people talk about this as a sunset product. It's, you know, it's everything. The future is online. And he gave us a personal, personal assurance that uh, I love this newspaper, and 10 years, he said, 10 years at least, we'll keep it going. Right? Uh, so... I think in my uh, journalism career, 10 years is, I can live with that. It's okay. So like I said, again, it's not about predicting trends. It's not about being really, uh, we, we, we have a lot of millennials in the office. They do this whole mass communication thing. Uh, I think um, new media, I, I can't understand new media. I can't understand social media like these millennials can, but I understand video. I understand the spoken word, having spent so long on TV. And I find the transition uh, that I'm making right now, where even though I work for a printed product primarily, um, the communication, the, your ability to tell the story, your ability to tell it fast, quick, and make people understand, my TV background helps a lot. And I use it uh, in a newspaper thing as well. But at the same time, like I said, we talk about elevating thought. It's not all about monkeys. Another, another very famous, uh, one of our most successful stories was uh, this uh, dog festival that you have in, uh, in China, Yulin. You know where people eat dogs, right? It's, it's a festival, it's their way of life, and there's a lot of criticism. Animal rights activists depend on the, uh, descend on the city every once a year, and they, there's a lot of clashes between people who think we have a right to eat dogs because we've been doing it for hundreds of years, and uh, people who love uh, dogs and pets who don't like it. But anyway, one of the most successful, uh, uh, biggest clicks we got was a guy killing a dog with a crossbow, for this festival, but the arrow bounced off and hit him. And uh, Ricky Gervais, who's uh, you know the comedian from The Office, not the American Office, the actual proper office show from the BBC, the old one. So Ricky Gervais uh, tweeted that because he found it funny, and that article went viral. So for people like me who are you know establishment traditionalists, boring people, let me say, it's very difficult for us to accept this that all the effort you put into stories that we think our audience should be reading gets a certain amount of clicks, a certain amount of readership, but people are interested in you know, monkeys climbing up coconut trees. Uh, the other video that I didn't show you was the one that people were really... You saw those cranes falling off buildings, all kinds of things going on. But one of the ones that got the aww reaction was a bunch of dogs at a shelter. 
right? And they had to be moved into a safer location. And uh, we are happy to report that every single dog survived. And that was the most popular. So now it's a matter of balancing the two. You decide which is somber, serious news that people should know about, and we need to disseminate that information. At the same time, we need people to click on our website, we need advertising dollars, we need, you know, the, we need audience engagement. So the tricky part is doing a balance between these two. And this is very much part of the digital transformation of our newsroom, where we need to maintain the reputation of a 115-year-old newspaper, but at the same time, we have to accept the reality that there are all kinds of people now who are engaged in this kind of thing, who are interested in certain kinds of things, and we have to be able to keep everyone happy. So like they say, you, can't keep, uh, you can keep some people happy some of the time and uh, all people happy some of the time, not everyone all the time. That's our mission. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Yondun, for the, <laughs> for the... Okay, now everybody to reward Yondun for this presentation. You go and like his uh, Facebook page, please. <laughs> Give me some love. Take Facebook me about love. 600, please. <laughs> and then uh, start a LinkedIn account, please. It's <laughs> okay, uh, it's time for uh, Q&A and discussion now. Maybe uh, very quickly before... Uh, yes, I, oh, very good. Okay, we've already got quest questions coming up. Uh, would you like to take, take the first question? you identify yourselves and, and also if you're directing the question at any one uh, panelist. Thank you. My name is Muhammad Ihwan. I'm a fellow from Indonesia. Uh, when you transform from print to digital and social media to distribute your news, uh, how do you manage it? Because a uh, different platform is different uh, audience, different characteristic. And how do you, do you manage it? Is there like a conflict of interest when you, manage, when you decide one uh, news judgment? Is there conflict or, or a difference uh, opinion about uh, the news? So how do you manage it? And how do you manage or maintain the branding of the kind of the news source? Thank you. That's a wonderful question to start off with. It's about the transformation journey that uh, news, your news organizations have, have made. Maybe Warren, uh, you want to start and then let's go around. Our, our view is that uh, we don't see a distinction between the print and the digital product in the sense that we are trying to serve our readers on whatever platform they choose to consume our content. So we are platform agnostic. I don't really care whether you read the print or the digital. I want to serve you with the best available version of that content for that platform. So, for example, I showed you that video of Rahul going out to North Korea. He can write all about it in print, and some people will read his beautiful prose in print. But they might also want to see what Pyongyang looks like uh, through, through the pictures, through the videos. So, with the tablet, with the phone, you can bring the audience there through the video. So you play to the strength of that particular platform. And that's what we're trying to do. Use each platform on the radio, on podcasts. Uh, you, you play to the strength of that particular platform. So in my mind, it's not about print versus digital or vice versa. We manage it as, as in the sense that we've, we believe our audience is everywhere. You know, that's what we're all doing. You know? We sit down, we read the newspaper sometimes, then we run out of time, we, we're on the go, we pick up our phone, when we're on the train, we continue to read. Later in the day, we might come back with the print product, or in the evening, we might pick up our tablet. My mission is to serve our readers everywhere. 
And I have a slight difference with Yondan in the sense that for my, my colleagues, I say it cannot be that the print product is pristine and the online is the quick and dirty version because I'm asking people to pay me for that service. So I must give you the best possible version I can, I can put out online as well. Because why am I giving you an inferior version online and then please read the print product? It can't be. I have to give you, I have to take my best shot at it, get it out to you quickly, and then figure out what I can do in print, either to add value, to curate, to, to add to it, or tell it in a beautiful prose. But I've got to serve all of your needs across platforms. So that's what we're trying to do. It's not easy. I, I fully agree with Yondan. It's, it's, a, it's a huge ask. But what I have found is the newsroom is excited about the, the fact that we are making this change. I think our younger journalists, even our not-so-young journalists, are seeing that this is the future, working across platforms. I don't really believe that the print product is ever going to die. I absolutely don't believe it. Brands that have done it, like the Newsweek and others, have found what a big mistake it is. The, the print product will be there, it will be read by a group of people, and it will be read at different times, different places, for a different purpose. But we are building a brand which you should try to get out there across as many platforms as you can, and one of it will be print. So I fully believe that we're 173 now. If we get our jobs right, my successors will celebrate the 200th anniversary of the Straits Times, and it will include a print product. Stephanie? Um, yeah, I, I, I think Warren makes a very good point. Um, for us, how we've managed it, we've had a website for a long time. Um, and as I said, our primary audience has traditionally been on the terminal. We have been very clear about um, our goal, our purpose as a news organization, right? We are a financial and business news focused organization. Um, so, you know, um, so we're not going to be, we're not going to have, even on our website, we're not going to have stories about the guy who uh, accidentally crossbowed himself while trying to kill the dog, right? Um, so our audience, even on the website, is quite targeted. Uh, that said, we do realize that um, when people are reading news on their mobile and on the website, uh, on the internet, um, you know, their habits are different. The people who choose to consume their news that way have different preferences. So what we, what we do is a couple of things. One, um, uh, not all the stories, not all the stories on the terminal appear on the website. Those uh, bullet point stories I showed you that are very market specific, that are targeted at the market audience, uh, those are likely to be uh, only consumed by people who have a Bloomberg terminal. So we leave that on the terminal. Um, we have certain exclusive content like our analysis, uh, our Bloomberg intelligence analysis, that stays on the terminal. Um, but we do have a, a, a chunk of our stories that end up on the website. Um, and for those stories that end up on the website, we curate it, we choose the ones that will, we think will be useful for an audience that's coming to us on the website, on social or mobile actually. Uh, nowadays it's more on, on uh, social media platforms um, and through our mobile apps. Uh, so sometimes you might see uh, that a story on the terminal has a slightly different headline from a story on the website. Um, and that's to tailor to different audiences. Um, we don't, um, we don't, um, we don't worry too much about cannibalization. As Warren says, it's about reaching the reader, 
um, at the time that they need the story most. And the different platforms provide that opportunity for us. Yeah, but you still do some soft lifestyle things like the crispy rendang scandal. Yes, so that's TikTok. <laughs> yes. So that's TikTok. And, and that was our... So TikTok is a new, um, a new initiative for us. Um, it's our partnership with Twitter. It's a 24 by 7 um, you know, Twitter channel. Um, and that's allowed us to reach out to a broader audience. The content there, yes, is different. Uh, we, did one, we did one on Crazy Rich Asians, obviously, and we did one... We, we, you know, we do stories like that. The rendang, the crispy rendang war was a great one. And we actually had people in the newsroom help out with that. In you know, our speed editor actually went out. Uh, you probably know Sebastian. He went out and ate rendang to to do this video sure, on it's TikTok. It's not crispy. Um, so yes, obviously that is a quite a different audience yet again. But again, for uh, for TikTok news, our goal there is you know there's a lot there's. The concern now is growing concern about fake news. Um, there's also uh, concern about the information that you're bombarded with on social media, things that break the internet, right? Um, you know, how much of what is, which is true, which is not true. And we're hoping that by, with TikTok news, it is, um, it is our offering of a credible source of news on, on, the, on social media. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I would, I would suggest you, you look up uh, TikTok, T-I-C-T-O-C on uh, Twitter. It's a really interesting format because I've never seen anything like that before. It's, it's almost like cable TV on, on Twitter. Uh, it's really interesting. They have uh, sort of clips around the hour and there's a sort of a summary at the top of the hour. Yes, right? yes we have a summary. Yeah. And it's not, it's not just crispy rundown. We also have financial news. Serious stuff. Serious stuff. <laughs> Real yes. news. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just need to... I think we've moved on beyond your question now. Um, I just need to clarify with uh, what uh, the Warren was... Yeah, yeah. The transformation. Yeah, the no, transformation. No. What I need to say is if, if my colleagues at the office uh, heard what you just said out of context, they'll, I'll be lynched when I get back. Mm. So basically, I'm not saying that our online product is inferior to the printed product. The online, we are in a state of trans, uh, transformation right now. We're making a transition. So the online is still a big... It's a big animal right now. And there's a, it's unlimited real estate. The stories are much longer. So readers are getting a certain something out of it. The fact, the thing is though, the printed product, you have to accept the reality. Why should anyone buy it anymore if it's all for free online? So we're gonna to have to make it a premium product, which is not to say the online is inferior, but maybe there will have to be some kind of monetization at some stage where because you're buying the printed paper, you're, getting, you're going to get exclusive content or you know, news behind the news kind of thing, whereas online is spot news, you know, that kind of stuff. So we'll be doing something like that. But yeah, the inferior product, I mean, I, I can't say that. It's not, not nothing like that right now. Well, I think it's, it's sort of the fundamental difference between uh, you know, curated content, as you've mentioned, versus a free. So even in uh, Indonesia, Compass has Compass.com and Compass.id. ID is the paid product, and .com is the advertiser-driven product. So there's a clear differentiation there. Uh, are there any other questions? Yeah, Kama. And uh, after that, maybe the gentleman over there. Sorry, her hand went up first. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Gamma Abdulaziz. I am teaching at a polytechnic. I was a former journalist. Uh, we teach writing, storytelling, and journalism. Um, more of a suggestion. Um, young people are not going to um, a lot of media sites because they don't see their stories there. Um, that's what I gather from my students. They don't see... Uh, their, their generation being represented or they don't see the stories that they're interested in being told in the way they're interested in. So um, I'm not seeing the co-creation of stories with the young people and maybe you need a bit more of that. So I invite you guys to come to the schools, to the polytechnics to 
to do more of it, to co-create the stories with our kids, because they do want to have their stories heard. And if you just listen to them, not all of their stories are about silly things that they watch on YouTube. A lot of them are great storytellers, and they have their own narratives. So if I could invite you to come and co-create the stories with the students, then perhaps you could get more students or more young people to your organizations. That's yeah. it. I'll invite both, uh, especially Warren and Yonder, to address that, because both of them have young reader products. That's a great question, because that really sets the stage for the next generation of readers. Actually, no, you're, you're spot on there, actually, because this is the future, right? So uh, I heard another speaker earlier saying that uh, the, uh, the printed product dies uh, when the readers die, and they're a dying breed because they're all old people. I, I don't believe in that. You're right. There, there is a young crowd, uh, and we're not telling enough of young people's stories. I mean, in our newspaper's defense, we do have a young post, which comes out twice a week. That's specifically tailored to schools. And we let young people write, we, let, we have young people's stories, even serious stories, like we break it down for young people. We have a proper department that deals with that. So we do do it. Maybe not enough. Maybe we should do more. I also totally agree with you. We need to get their voices into the paper. They need to see stories that, that are about them and things they're doing. I remember we had one assignment, some, this must be some months ago, where I think it was one of the polys or the ITE was holding a conference on robotics in the ITE. And I looked at the schedule and it said no coverage. And I sort of queried my colleagues to say, why? Why is there no coverage? Is it because it's you know, a bunch of kids doing it? Well, if we don't write about what they're doing in you know, their day-to-day -day lives, how are they ever going to be interested in, in the product? So I, I agree with you entirely. Uh, we, we try to do some of it by, by engaging some of our young journalists because they are uh, you know, needing to write about their peers as well. In the ST newsroom, there's a, a group of pa uh, journalists who are passionate about animals and animal rights. And you know, some of the older colleagues would say, why are we writing about dogs and cats and you know, uh, all kinds of wildlife uh, per per parading around the island? But young people are passionate about those issues, and we ought to reflect their interests and their concerns. So I entirely agree. The key question is not to write it in a way that talks down to them, I think. Uh, I, and I think while we have school products, we have products for primary schools, secondary schools, tertiary institutions, they need to see it in the main product. It cannot be a separate little ghetto that we say, okay, young people go there, you know, and this is the main product. I think that's got to change. And that's got to change with our own mindsets. The more we engage them, the more they see themselves in the product, the better. Uh, we have a forum page, for example. And it, I, I have an annual meeting with the forum letter writers. And uh, we then started a forum page for the young. And so I started a separate day when I would meet the young forum writers. And their feedback to me was, why can't we go and meet with the other forum writers? Why do we have to have a separate session? So we decided to bring them all together. And it was fascinating to see the conversation that went on between the young folks and the older folks and the, the engagement that you were getting between them. So I, I'm entirely with you in the sense that the product must be inclusive, inclusive across race, across gender, across age groups as well. That's how you're going to stay relevant to, uh, long into the future. And I think there's a product that you all have called Stir, which, which I don't even see on Facebook because I'm not the target audience, obviously, but uh, maybe could you just let, let us know what uh, that is? Very well, young, very Very young. briefly, Stir was a bit of an experiment. Um, I, I got a bunch of uh, millennial colleagues and I said to them, 
Imagine you could do a product which you felt would connect with your peers. What would it look like? What would you do? And I told them completely blue skies. Just, and I, I, I protected them. I, I, I didn't tell anybody in the, new, the organization we were doing it. We gave them a little quiet corner to work with. And they came up with the product. Uh, my first instinct when they came to me with, with S-T-I-R-I-R-R, I thought, gosh, people are going to think you can't spell. But they convinced me that this was a, a name that would connect with their, with their peers. They wanted to take this approach. And we decided to let them try, experiment. And I told them, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. Just try. And so far, they've been doing it for about maybe a bit more than a year now. It, it has got some traction with the younger audience. Uh, with advertisers as well. So we'll, we'll keep going. It will, it will evolve. It may or may not change. We'll, we'll watch it and see how it goes. But what I like is the fact that within the newsroom, there are people who are willing to try these things. Right now, uh, we're trying a lot of podcasting. So a group is also working very hard on building up a, a good uh, repertoire of podcasts that we're putting out. And I think we've got to get... The most important thing we can do in our newsrooms for these so-called old brands is to get the idea that we are ready to roll whatever the technology uh, comes, whatever comes, in the sense that none of us on this panel can honestly say to you that we know what the future version of our product is going to look like, whether it's going to be on the phone, whether it's going to be some chip that's embedded in your, in your forehead or, or, or whatever. We just don't know. But what we can do for our, our newsrooms is give Everyone, that sense of nimbleness of mind, that confidence that we know how to play. Whatever comes, we can adapt, we can change, we've done it. We've done it many, many times. If there's a new technology that comes, we'll just get in there and we'll know, we'll know how to transform. And if you look back at our brands, you know, that's been our history, that's been our DNA. We're not all brands that are some, some, somehow going to die. If, if you go back to the start of the Straits Times in 1845, the, origin, the very first editor of the Straits Times, a, a young English lawyer, was effectively a blogger. He was just writing about what he heard from his friends in his own social circle, publishing it on a few sheets of paper and putting it once, out once a week. And then over time, he got a bit more money, so he started to get correspondence writing to him, and then he put out the paper more often. Then he discovered the Telegraph, uh, you know, which could get him more information, so he expanded his coverage. And over time, the newspaper changed and transformed and became a daily newspaper. And when it got enough advertising and enough resources, it built a professional newsroom. Radio, TV, computers have come and changed the newsroom, and we've changed with it. So in my newsroom, I say to our folks, there's nothing to be afraid about the technological change that's coming at us. We've done this. We've, we've adapted and we've survived for 173 years. We now just have to be confident that we can do this, we know how to do this, and we will continue to survive. Soren, do you have anything to add for our young readers? Or your just that our TikTok team is staffed by millennials. <laughs> <laughs> and it's out of Hong Kong, right? And, and New York. Hong Kong and Singapore and uh, New York. New York yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, sorry, there was a question there. Yeah, and then after that, maybe Cheryl, after that. Hi, I'm Howard from Murdoch University. I've got a couple of questions for uh, Warren. Um, I take it from what you've said is that uh, the Straits Times seems to be moving the way forward in terms of the kind of different kinds of news that it uh, pushes out as well as the different platforms. 
Um, what I'd like to ask is uh, closer to what uh, Yondon was talking about in terms of elevating thought. Um, does the Straits Times see that uh, see any change in terms of uh, what the audience demands and how is it delivering that? So that's the first question. Second one has got to do with trust. Um, I think I would assume, as most people do, that the Straits Times, uh, given its established brand, uh, has that in spades. So without denying a lot of people do trust the Straits Times. How do you see that changing moving forward? Thanks. Yeah, I think the first question, if I heard you correctly, was about the changing mix of content with the audience changing. Was that right? Uh, yes, and I, I acknowledge that basically Straits Times is, uh, is, is doing all you can at it. My question was more towards uh, content that uh, what Yondon was talking about in terms of elevating thought. Uh, how is the Straits Times approaching that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we watch uh, the numbers every day. What, what stories resonate with the readers? And I can tell you it's a very good mix. Yes, it's the, it's the funny videos, it's the uh, dramatic footage, but some of the most, uh, most well-read pieces that we put out online behind the paywall, the top uh, foreign story this year was a piece by my colleague Leslie Lopez on the 24 hours when power changed hands in Malaysia. That was number one. It was read, it drove traffic to the subscription shop, and it converted readers to subscribers because we follow it right all the way through. The other most well most successful story on converting readers to subscribers was a piece by Salma Khalid explaining to Singaporeans the massive changes that were taking place in their insurance premiums. How serious and dull can that get? But people were interested in it because it was going to affect them and their, and their, and their pocketbooks. So when you have content like that, which people are interested in, it can be serious, but you can explain it, you can interpret it, and you're adding value. Uh, one of the the best watched videos we had recently, premium content, was of a live surgery that was being done, a live brain surgery that was being done. And we actually managed to get into the operating theatre and film uh, because the person who was doing it wanted to show uh, others out there the kinds of technology that was being used to save lives like his. So it's a whole mix of content, some serious, some not so serious. So I think for an organization like us, we shouldn't, we shouldn't dumb down. We shouldn't show any disrespect to our audience because there will be some who are interested in you know, more entertaining content. But I think at the end of the day, we all have to make big decisions in our lives, right? Where do you send your kids to school? Where do you put your money in to pay for their, your kids' schooling? It's about taking that content and making it meaningful and relevant to people's lives. Uh, most recently, one of the things we did which really resonated with the audience was uh, picking a primary school for your kid. And you know, this is a big issue in Singapore. Every year we go through this primary one registration exercise and parents worry about which schools are still having places and they have to ballot and there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth and if you don't get into a particular primary school. So we actually went back and did a data project and tracked you know, schools and over the years at which phase did they run out of places. And we put our education, Sandra Davy, onto this and we put her forward to help you, help you explain to people the process, what are your chances of getting into this particular school and if you didn't get into that school, what are your options? And that was very well read. So, to me, it says that meaningful, serious content can be done in an engaging way, and people will pay to read it. 
that was your first question. I think the second one was about trust. Um, I think that just very quickly, I think there are two components to trust. One, you have to keep reflecting what people are thinking and go, what's going through their lives. And if you reflect a different version of that reality, you will lose trust. Uh, and, and so we are minded never to do that. The second part of trust is really staying connected with your readers. And I think if you look at what has happened in the US, why have the traditional brands allowed themselves to fall into a place where the likes of a Donald Trump can emerge and then poke fun at them? It's because they've allowed that gap, that distance between themselves and their readers to grow over time. So we must never allow that to happen to us. We've got to be out there. We've got to be taking the trains, which might break down. We're experiencing it. You know, we might be facing the same cost of living that everybody else is worried about. And show to our, our readers that we're part of this community. We're not some uh, bunch of people in an ivory tower separate from them. We're very much part of you. We're connected with you. We're coming out to engage with you. And we're, we're minded and eager to reflect your concerns as you are living and experiencing it. I think that's how you build trust. Yeah, just very quickly, uh, the, the, one of the groups that I'm involved in called Hacks Hackers Singapore, we are actually featuring the ST uh, Primary 1 uh, data registration project. Uh, so it's, it's how data and machine learning have been used to visualize the whole registration process. It's very Singaporean, I know, but uh, it, one of the, some of the staff from uh, ST will be talking about how they did it. It's, it's quite technical. It's, a, it's a, on the 26th of uh, September, next Wednesday at SPH uh, at 7.30 p.m. So go to meetups.com, Hacks Hackers Singapore, Hacks Stroke Hackers, uh, and the details are there and you can, you can register. So um, Cheryl had a question. I think we've got time for maybe after Cheryl's question, one more question. Uh, um, uh, another feature of the digital is the immediate visibility of feedback and analytics. And so I wonder if you could speak more about how, how really your, your organizations take analytics, whether you take analytics seriously, and how perhaps your practices may have adjusted or changed in way, what you see as ideal ways of dealing with analytics and feedback. You want to start that first? Then? Yeah, um, we take analytics very, very seriously. This is our bread and butter, um, both on the terminal and obviously on social media and uh, on our digital on our digital platforms. How have we adjusted? I guess um, you know we've done things like. Um, we figure out things like what times of the day, uh, what times of the day are good uh, for certain stories to move, for example. Uh, we figure out things like uh, where our, you know, where our where our readers are coming from. Um, we figure out things like what headlines work better, right? We can we can kind of test out different headlines and see whether there are headlines that uh, get a lot of readership, and we come up with, uh, you know, we, we then kind of like figure out a way forward for how we, how we might um, position stories in the future. Um, we are able to see, um, we are able to see on the terminal, uh, for example, um, how well stories do. Uh, we know what are the most read stories of the day, uh, you know, as you can as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, come back to me. <laughs> yeah, we take it very seriously, actually. Um, we have a very big team uh, that deals with metrics, analytics. Um, uh, we know exactly who's reading what, and we're all obsessed with it. Uh, I think a little unhealthily, as, uh, that's my personal opinion, because it's not just about clicks. It's also, I think it's about, uh, you know, sending message, the message out to people, the stories you need people to read. 
that's also as important as how many people read it. But of course, you know, because of the advertisers and whatever, I guess that's really important as well. So yeah, we do have a metrics team. We do have uh, a lot of focus on analytics. We do. One, one thing newsroom consultants suggest is to put up screens, you know, these leaderboards in your newsroom. It gives the newsroom a sense of energy, and you can also track the performance of various stories. And I know ST has one big one in the newsroom, but I'm sure with the renovation there might be more. Yeah, we're going to have screens all over the place with the, with the analytics, but we're also going to give the analytics to every journalist on his phone. Mm -hmm. So we've decided to do that uh, because then, you know, Christopher Tan or Salma Khalik will see how their particular story is doing and who's reading it and how much time they're actually spending on it. Uh, we, have also, we, have, we also have a system every day. We start the, the news conference with one of our social media editors just walking us through. So what stories were read, what stories drove readers to the subscription shop, and then how many of them were converted to subscribers. And we've just signed a, a partnership with a Norwegian firm to track that last part of it especially. Uh, so what were the subscribers reading? When did the subscribers leave us? What do we need to do to connect with them to say, you know, you, you're a subscriber, but you've been away for three days or five days. Here's some interesting content that you might be interested in and draw them back to us. So that's the next piece that we're working on. Yeah. Just a footnote there. I mean, uh, our, our metrics show us that a lot of our readers now, and that's a really growing segment, our entire focus is on the U.S. right now. We're trying to expand the U.S. market. We've uh, put up bureaus and stuff there. But a lot of our readers, our metrics are showing us are from Singapore and Malaysia. So, Singaporeans and Malaysians, thank you. <laughs> yes, and uh, one more question. About two minutes. Um, I just want to, even though Stephanie said it's not a danger to journals, I just... Uh, Got a little terrified by knowing that machines are writing uh, artic not articles but news and stuff. So artificial intelligence seems like a potential cost-saving solution for a lot of media organizations, and a lot of them are testing now. So no idea how far it, it would go, <laughs> but at least news gathering, fact-checking, and data collecting, all of these can be done by you know artificial intelligence. So. What kind of damage are we journalists are looking at in terms of jobs? Um, and uh, do you have like any, uh, you know, long-term plan uh, to cut down some jobs and replace with the machines? Yeah, that's my question. Humans versus bots, yes. I think probably Bloomberg's been using that the longest time, right? Bots, and, and then I'm sure you are exploring. Yeah. We haven't cut any jobs because people's jobs have been replaced by machines. Um, we already operate as a very lean newsroom. I know we have more than 2,700 people around the world, but we actually, our reporters do a lot of things. Uh, for, <laughs> you know, they do a lot of things. They're required to do a lot of things. Um, and um, with the evolution of technology, as we've seen, um, they're not just, uh, you know, they're not just uh, writing stories. They're, they're doing TV interviews. They're, uh, they're um, doing podcasts. They're, uh, you know, they're, they, they have to multitask a lot. So I don't think there's any journalist who um, is in danger of being phased out by machines. What it has done is it has freed us up. I mean, none of us in this room got into journalism to sit at our desk and wait for press <laughs> statements to come in and to then physically 
type that into the machine. Like, you know, I don't think any of us got into this job to do that. We got into this job to break news. And um, so artificial intelligence, automation, all that is going to free us up from the tyranny of that kind of, uh, that kind of work uh, so that we can actually go out and break news. What um, we have discovered is that um, we are actually uh, finding new roles for people. Um, you know, there's someone who needs to program that machine to read the press statement and take out headlines. And it's not easy. It is, it, you know, it takes work. The machines are not very smart. Um, um, and um, we need people to, um, we need people to, uh, we, you know, we've created a new team to, uh, the TikTok team is new. We've got a whole new uh, social velocity team, people who still have to monitor uh, Twitter feeds around the world and spot the news. Uh, even though the machine helps them, the machine can't do it perfectly. So we've created, we've got new jobs coming out as a result. So, um, not worried yet. I think think of it as an opportunity to do what you really get into journalism for. Yeah, we are actually out of time, but very quickly, do you want to? Just uh, I was going to say that? that when I was a young journalist, Alan was my editor, and he used to make me go for T line classes, and you couldn't be confirmed if you didn't pass your T line. Shorthand. But yeah, shorthand, and nobody nobody does that anymore they these days. Don't know what T line is. You don't, know, you don't even know what it is because there's no need for it. So the, the, the job has changed, in the sense the requirements for the job has changed because you've got all these gadgets that will help you record stuff or soon help you transcribe. Just a few days ago, I got an uh, email from someone in McGill University offering the ST Newsroom a free trial to their new transcription service for free. Mm -hmm. Try it out for six months because they're so confident at the high level of accuracy of this uh, software that you don't need people to sit there and literally transcribe your notes. What that means for the transcribers is a big issue because their jobs are at stake. So I've just been moderating a forum on the future of jobs at the World Economic Forum. And the, the big challenge is that some jobs are at risk. But the bigger challenge, I think, is that the work that you do within the job will also change. So many of the things that we do today, which we don't even consider crucial to our jobs, will become important. For example, we all know how to take wifis and pictures with our phones. That's not crucial to anybody's job today, but you can't say, years down the road, it may be an important skill. Can you take a decent wifi before you're, you're admitted into a newsroom? I don't know. The thing is, we've got to, as I, that nimbleness of mind to be able to adapt and learn to do the job we're doing in new ways. And in my newsroom, I'm so happy to say that it's not age-related, it's not gender-related, it's not race-related. It's willingness to learn, it's willingness to try. And some of our oldest journalists are the best at doing multimedia because they're willing to try. And uh, so that gives us hope that you know, we, can, we can survive whatever comes, whatever change comes. Very quickly on this. Well, not to sound arrogant, but I don't think the machine that's going to replace me has been built yet. Uh, the day that they do, I will shake hands with that machine and I will fade gently into the night. <laughs> I'd just like to thank our panel. We've run out of time. Uh, but such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your contributions and for sharing. Thank you, Junie, Warren, Stephanie, and Yonden. Um, we've come to the end of the um, forum, but um, I'll ask you to indulge me for just a few minutes. I'm not 
going to take the full 15 minutes for the closing remarks. Simply no need. Um, at the beginning, uh, when my director, Janadas Devan, gave his opening remarks, he talked about two crises of journalism. Uh, one crisis of relevance and the other one crisis of economics. So I don't think today's panels gave answered all the questions, that's for sure. Um, but I think it definitely did give some um, very thought-provoking and useful insights. Uh, for one, I'm extremely glad that I didn't hear that dreaded D word, disruption. But what I keep hearing are, you know, three words, right? One of which is stories, the importance of stories. So, for example, Stephanie, in the last panel, talked about the many, many different ways of um, telling stories. Um, Cheryl, in panel two, talked about the usefulness of transmedia storytelling and Devi, um, about narrative storytelling and how that actually has an impact. So, for instance, she gave the example of what Magdalene did um, with the anti-sexual violence bill. Um, the other word was engagement, right? And this was something that came up in yesterday's visit um, at Facebook for the visiting journalist and the uh, Asia Journalism Fellows. Um, it's, not it's not enough to just... Um, you know, tell stories and publish stories. Uh, what is also important is engagement. And when Sri or even Mustafa from Raw talked about engagement, and again, this was um, reiterated, okay, by uh, the Facebook News Journalism Project team. Engagement is about really building communities, building conversations around the stories that you put up. And finally, the third word that we heard a lot today is audience. I mean, short of sounding didactic. Understanding your audience is something that I don't think would cease to be important. And um, we spoke so much about millennials. Um, we sometimes can't stand them, but we can't do without them. We certainly can't stop talking about them. And we are continuing um, to try to understand them. So understanding your audience and being relevant to your audience, I think these are some maybe key takeaways that I hope all of us can you know, uh, take home with us. I'm not sure where Zahida is. Is Zahida in the room? I requested for her to be in the room. Now, all of us would not be here yeah, all of us would not be here, and that's visiting journalists included, um, the speakers and the chairs included, if not for her very, very persistent and patient follow-up and chasing. So please join me in giving Zahida and the team a round of applause. For that, I have a very, very small ask. Um, it does matter to Zahida and her colleagues um, how we run these events and forums. So there's just a very, very simple form that I promise will not take you more than 20 seconds to fill. So it's in your uh, program booklet. So if you could just do that and hand it to my colleagues on your way out, um, I would greatly appreciate it. So thank you once again for being here, for spending your time with us and for all your questions. Thank you.